Hi, I'm Chris Sprouse, Speaker of the Florida House and former prosecutor. From policy briefs to white papers, court cases to brutal police records, no matter my role, reading has been a central part of my mission to defend American values. But this isn't just my job. Reading books is a personal passion, and getting to know the authors behind the ideas on the page is one of my favorite pastimes. The Red, White, and Blue podcast is now in session. Welcome back, listeners. Today, we're talking with best-selling author of Woke, Inc., Vivek Ramaswamy, about his book that tears back the curtain on the woke industrial complex and offers Americans a path forward in this crazy environment we're living in. Vivek is the New York Times best-selling author, a successful biotech entrepreneur, and a first-generation American. He's also the founder and executive chairman of Roy Vance Sciences and a Yale Law School graduate. Recently, I sat down with Vivek to talk about the modern impulse to mix woke virtue with consumerism and how that's played out in Florida and America. I think Vivek is one of the leading voices in the nation right now on pushing back on woke capitalism. I share kind of a funny story about how I ran into him and how we met and started talking about this topic. Please join us now for our conversation. Well, Vivek, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining me here on the podcast. Yeah, good to talk to you again. Uh, we bumped into each other a bit ago, but it's good to connect this way again. Yeah, good to, good to connect with you. And lots to talk to you about. I want to get right to it. Obviously, we're, we're doing a lot in Florida uh, that relates to your work around individual freedoms and what's happening in our schools, what's happening in the, in the corporate boardrooms, uh, what's happening in trainings uh, across companies and throughout America. Uh, but you wrote a book about this, you know, Woke Incorporated, Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam. So before we get to all that, tell me, you know, what the book's about and why you decided to write about it. Yeah, sure. I mean, for me, it was it was really different than the career I had led up to the point that I decided to write the book. My background was in science. I had studied molecular biology at Harvard as an undergrad, uh, picked up a law degree along the way. I was in biotech investing at a hedge fund for seven years. And then I left and I founded a biotech company that I led as CEO for seven years after that. So really different than writing books and going on media, which is a lot of what I do uh, over the last couple of years. But, but the reason I did it is I felt like even though I wasn't born into elite America, I had lived it for the last 15 years, and, and I really felt that there was a, a deep deceit at work, especially in corporate America, where businesses pretended like they cared about something other than the aggregation of profit or power precisely to gain more of each. And I thought that was, that was sowing the seeds for a widespread crisis of institutional mistrust, a culture of fear in our country where the people who work for those companies increasingly had to fear for their jobs, for speaking their minds, make choices between putting food on the dinner table and speaking their minds freely. And, you know, look, as a first-generation American myself, my parents came to this country as immigrants. It, that, that, that meant something to me. I mean, this was not the country that my parents came halfway around the world to join. It wasn't the country that I knew growing up in Ohio, uh, where I was born, raised, and where I live today. And, you know, I decided that the first step to charting a better course was to shine sunlight on the problem. And that's what I did with writing the book, though I'm hoping to take that to the next level by, uh, by you know, implementing some of the ideas I lay out in the book in the real world as well. That's awesome. I want to talk, I'll talk about the implementation part towards the end of the podcast. But, you know, you, you write this book. Obviously, you feel passionately about it. You mentioned we ran into each other. Uh, you know, for our listeners, I'm, I'm in a pretty small restaurant in D.C. and I had just read your book. And I thought it was awesome. I meet a buddy who works at a think tank and I'm telling him all about it. Like I'm trying to make you know, the arguments that you make in the book, trying to explain it to him. And we move on. And about 10 minutes later, I hear a guy over my left shoulder 
making the same arguments uh, that I was making, but much better, uh, much more succinct, much more articulate. I'm like, gosh, this guy's talking about the exact same thing we were just talking about. I turn over my left shoulder, it's you. And, uh, and there that you are, funny. you know. And uh, so it was great to catch up with you there. And, and uh, but we got to catch up about these ideas you talk about in the book, like stakeholder capitalism, about the Goldman rule. You know, for those people who haven't seen you on TV or they haven't read your book, tell us what stakeholder capitalism is and, and how you think it's changing American democracy. First off, written not in critical terms, but just in descriptive terms. What is it? Okay, so stakeholder capitalism refers to the idea that companies shouldn't just provide goods and services to their customers for the pursuit of profit, shouldn't just serve their shareholders, but should also serve a much wider range of stakeholders. Those stakeholders could include workers. They could include minority communities. It could include the climate writ large. But it basically says that businesses have a social purpose that go beyond selling their own goods and services for profit to also advance other social agendas along the way. You could say that's a well-intentioned philosophy. Maybe for some it is. Milton Friedman, you know, who was a thinker 50 years ago on the right amongst libertarian circles, very popular. You and I both know him, of course. You know, he had an objection to this, that it would make businesses less efficient, that it would make them less profitable, that they would be less good at making and selling widgets and their shareholders would be worse off. And that would reduce the size of the economic pie for everyone. That was his argument against so-called stakeholder capitalism. And I'm sympathetic to a lot of his concerns. The argument I make in the book and my sort of principal beef with stakeholder capitalism is actually the opposite. It is not that I think that politics invades our businesses and makes businesses less efficient, though I think that can happen too. I think it's the reverse where our corporations invade the sphere of our politics and actually convert our one person, one vote, our one person, one voice system into a $1, one vote system creating effectively the old world European model here on American soil, where the old world model was a small group of business leaders and church leaders and and labor elites would get together behind closed doors and decide what was right for the rest of society at large. The new world, the American revolution was built on the idea that we reject that model and say that we as citizens determine the answer to our moral questions together through free speech and open debate in the public square where every person's voice and vote counts equally for better or worse. And that is what I view as the American way, the Western way, the way of the new world. And what I view stakeholder capitalism, and it goes by other names too, the Great Reset, ESG, CSR, DEI is a species of ESG. Pick your They tend to come in three-letter acronyms, so, so pick your favorite three-letter acronym of choice. I think what it really is about is recreating the old world monarchical model here on the new world soil. And I think that's why we do and ought to have an allergic reaction to it and reject it before it actually becomes, I think, quickly the most dangerous threat to liberty and prosperity in our country. I love the example of the monarchical model. And you talk about Europe, you use a specific example in the book, which if anybody's a student of history, they, they remember, which is the Dutch East India Company. You know, here's a company in sort of the old world that was more powerful than most countries, you know, had more guns and people and, and armies at their disposal than, than most countries and could dominate sort of the old world. I love that that idea and how you talk about, you know, the, the intersection between Friedman's ideas. You also introduce something in that same idea that I think is different and new that I had not heard anyone make that argument before you, which is there's this limited liability 
protection that we as Americans, we as government have decided we're going to give to corporations as a way to to protect them legally and give them limited liability. And, and you talk about the intersection of that limited liability when it comes to this monarchical model that we're going back to and the spreading of woke capitalism. So so tell us what your concern is there and what are the kinds of things that we should be thinking about? Well, yeah, I mean, this is this is uh, really, I think, uh, what I view as a sign of respect that we ought to have for the people who founded this country and founded different elements of the country's legal system, including corporate law, because we had woven into our fabric from day one, the idea that we did not want to see the emergence of any monarchy on American soil. And so even to a technocratic realm of the law, like corporate law, we find the echoes of that same idea. So so the way it works is we basically said that if you're a corporation, and a corporation has shareholders, in order to give those shareholders the incentive to put up capital to fund new exploratory projects, you have to tell them that they don't bear the debts of the corporation, that if the corporation gets sued or it goes under, you can lose the amount of your investment, but you don't lose any more than the amount of your investment. That is, if you invest in another company and the company goes south, you might lose your investment. That's fine. That's part of taking a risk but you can't lose your house or your car or your family's assets or else nobody would put up the requisite capital needed to do great things like invent new medicines or send rocket ships into space or build 5G communication systems or whatever it is that we want to see in the modern versions of our 20th century and 21st century industrial revolutions. In fact, many economists credit the invention, this legal invention of what's called limited liability with spawning the first industrial revolution in the first place. However, there were very they were very clear about the scope of where that limited liability was supposed to apply. They said it was supposed to apply in the sphere of the market for actually giving capital to companies to allow them to provide goods and services to people who needed them. And how do we know that it was scope limited for that purpose? It's because it was paired with the second feature of corporate law that said not only do shareholders have the benefit of limited liability, But there's also a mandate that comes with it to the company. And the mandate to the company is this. If you're on the company's board or an executive of the company, you have a sole duty, one duty, to maximize value, the dollar value you generate for the shareholders. Now, the Milton Friedman way of thinking was saying that this was a double whammy in favor of the shareholders because that was what was needed to increase the incentives that shareholders have to put up capital for new projects. Not only do you give them limited liability, but you also have to protect them by giving a mandate to executives and board members to say you only look after their financial interests. Actually look at it, and I think the history supports my view, look at it a little bit differently. The first, the first piece was about incentivizing investors to put up capital. You, you got to give them limited liability or no one else would want to put up capital. I agree with that. But actually the second point wasn't a, a, wasn't another quid. It was the quo to the first quid. What I mean by that is it was the demand to say that if we're going to make you so powerful by immunizing you from liability that emanates from your own investments and your own actions that you would benefit from, if we're going to give you immunity from the consequences of that, that comes with a demand in return that we're making you pretty darn powerful. And the demand we're going to impose is to say that you stay in your lane to say that if you are a corporation and you get that benefit because we want to use it for this narrow purpose of aggregating capital for innovation, et cetera, great. It is only for those purposes of aggregating capital for innovation that customers and others benefit from that you ought to wear this cloak of limited liability. But you don't get it for social engineering 
for effectively engaging in politics, for engaging in social activism, where the people who do that as individual citizens, they don't have any special form of liability. If you're going out in a protest and, and you know on the street for some political cause and you happen to run over somebody in your car, believe me, you're going to be sued by the person you ran over with in that car. You're liable for the actions that you take, that, that you undertake. But the corporation's shield of limited liability was supposed to be an exception to that rule. So, so admittedly, Chris, that's a little technical, but it, it's an example of the kind of thing that even in sort of arcane technocratic features of our legal system, even in these features of corporate law that not that many people are familiar with, were the echoes of this basic vision that said that we don't want corporate giants, corporate monsters, corporate Frankensteins, like the Dutch East India Company born here on American soil. We want to separate capitalism from democracy to allow people to accumulate as many green pieces of paper as they possibly can to achieve material prosperity, but to stay in their lane while they do it as long as they don't wield undue social and political influence. And yet that's how we get to a failure of, of betrayal of that system is what gets us to modern Silicon Valley and other segments of the business community looking a lot like the Dutch East India Company of our day. And that's the problem. And obviously, we're surrounded now in America by these corporate monsters who are doing exactly the, the kind of thing that, that you're talking about. I, I got to think that most people are like me or most people are sitting around their couch watching sports or they're on their dinner table and they're thinking to themselves every time this happens, why would this company do this? You know, I mean, like, right. So you, you have been sort of on both sides of this, right? Like you're on the side now where you're talking about this issue. You've been a CEO of a, of a, of a major company where you've seen kind of the inner workings of a boardroom. So put us inside the mind of somebody who's sitting around a boardroom who's obviously cares about, you know, profits and stock price and those kinds of things. Why have they decided to get so far outside their lane on these things? What What is the incentive for them? So look, I mean, this is, you know, there's a lot of layers to this. That's why it takes a whole book to write. And we're not going to get <laughs> to all the layers in a few minutes here. But, but I do think, Chris, it might be kind of fun and interesting to just take a look at a recent example that's close to home for you. And that's pretty recent in time. Look what happened with Disney. Okay. Disney in, you know, I don't need to re-preach it to you, but, but to anyone who, who, for whatever reason, hadn't paid attention to this issue, you know, Disney has, is now going on a national crusade against legislation like the parental rights and education bill in, in Florida, in, in states across the country, using their corporate resources, pledging to either prevent such laws or repeal such laws, including in the state of Florida using their corporate resources to do it. And the funny thing is, there was a good survey actually connected by the Daily Wire a few weeks ago, which found that over 60% of Disney's own customers strongly disagreed with Disney's own position on this. So here they have alienated their own customer base. The early evidence would suggest maybe even actually having an adverse impact on their customers choosing to visit their theme park. And yet here they are doing it. What's behind that, right? It seems to be hurting their own profitability. It's betraying the democratic system to say that, you know, you don't like your legislators. Well, guess what? Unlike Disney CEO Bob Chappick, you, Chris, are accountable to your constituents who actually vote and put you there. And if they don't like what you're doing, guess what they're going to do? They're going to vote you out. Same thing for Governor DeSantis, who signed the bill into law. He may, be, he may have passed a law that a lot of Floridians like. It appears that way for this particular bill. But if they don't, they have a mechanism. It's called an election. They vote him out. They can't do that to Bob Chappick. And so he's effectively wielding political power, but without the backstop of political accountability, what's driving this behavior? And in this particular case, it doesn't even appear to advantage him or his company. Right. So here, the problem actually traces upstream a little bit. And this is what's invisible to a lot of people. People look at that situation and say, okay, this was a spineless CEO who bent the knee to 20 woke employees who cried on his shoulder as millennials in his office. Why is he doing this? Well, there are some other cynical forces at work here too. Okay, the top three shareholders of Disney happen to be generally the top three shareholders or among the top shareholders of nearly every large company in corporate America. 
Those are BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard. Okay, those are the three largest asset managers in the country. They manage over $20 trillion collectively. That is more than the GDP of the United States, comprised of the money of everyday citizens, retirees, pensioners, nurses, firefighters across this country. And what they do is they show up in the boardrooms of these companies, formally or informally, mostly informally. And they say, actually, we as the shareholder want you to pursue ESG or DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, or CSR, corporate social responsibility, basically encouraging them to do the CEOs like Bob Chapek to do the same things that his millennial woke employees are demanding that he do as well. And this is where they turn the Milton Friedman narrative upside down because Milton Friedman would say, no, 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 you can't listen to those silly employees because you would be betraying shareholder value by alienating your customers. They said, no, 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 Milton Friedman, you're you're long dead. Your head's in a basket. Goodbye. Uh, We actually have showed up as the shareholders and we're telling you as the shareholder that, no, 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 we're your boss. You work for us. Milton Friedman even agreed that you work for us and we're telling you this is how we want you to behave. So that's the cynical force at work here. Now, now there's two issues with it, okay? One is they're not actually the shareholders. The actual shareholders are the everyday citizens whose capital these these firms are, are, I think, they're perpetrating one of the largest scale ideal frauds. It's not a financial fraud in the conventional sense. It's an ideological fraud, but it is the largest scale frauds in modern history using the capital of everyday citizens to be able to foist values onto the places where those citizens work, where they shop, where they bank, where they invest in ways that would make their own blood boil if they actually knew what was going on with right. the money. Yeah. And, and, and so then why do they do it? You could say that, okay, well, you know, it, don't they want to make more money if these companies make more money in return? The answer then traces back to the real lurking monster behind the scene, which is, of course, state action in the first place. They're effectively doing what the Democratic Party, the party in power in the United States wants them to do. They're in bed implementing those regulations as ESG through the SEC rules that are coming out that give them competitive favors versus other asset managers in return, but also in return are doing favors for government to be able to do through the back door what government could not do, what the federal government could not do through the front door. And so that's how this this game runs really deep, which is why I call it more of a woke industrial complex than any particular woke capitalist phenomenon. Yeah, and I, I love the uh, I love the use of the diversity industrial complex. You know, coming off of Eisenhower's you know military industrial complex in World War II. I, I you know Disney's a great example, right? I think of of this, and we're, we're experiencing it here in the state of Florida. I think to your point about these, uh, you know, Vanguard and some of the others. You know, most of their investors are just everyday folks, right? They had a financial planner who's helping them plan for retirement. They're they're investing in these things that are investing in places like Disney. Ironically, here's Disney who is pushing back on a bill that essentially says, hey, don't have classroom-led instruction on things like gender ideology in grades, you know, kindergarten through third grade, you know, five and six-year-olds. And the funny thing is when you talk to people about it, they sort of do what you just did, which is kind of like giggle and be like, wait, wait a second. Nobody's nobody's saying that you should do that, right? And essentially Disney and I, Shapiro, I had you know talked to him uh, a couple of weeks ago about this, and he sort of laughed and he's like, this is like the ultimate troll because you actually got Disney to take the position that they should be teaching gender ideology to five-year-olds. Like, how's that even possible? Launch a national crusade around it. <laughs> right, right. So, so, so what's funny is, in, you know, the only place where we messed up on this, we meaning, you know, our, our movement collectively is, you know, the, the left is really good at naming laws. So, so, so they use a rhyme to name the law. They call it don't say gay. It's not what the bill says. My view is we got to get better at using those rhymes. If we were going to use a rhyme for this bill, I, I have a very clear one. We should have called it wait till eight. As in literally just like wait till you're eight years old <laughs> right. until you teach kids about gender identity and sexual orientation. But, but there's the substance of that issue, which I think is an important issue. It's an issue that you and your colleagues adjudicated. I think it's an important one. I have views on it. You have views on it. 
there's a separate issue, which is irrespective of where you land on the substance of it, whether or not Disney and companies like Disney and their CEOs and their shareholders, and I say shareholders in scare quotes because they're not their they're real shareholders, but they're, they're institutional masters, their managerial masters like BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard should be the ones that effectively tilt the scales on those discussions or whether we should agree or disagree, at least do it in the open in the civic spaces of our society as citizens. And I think that whether you're on the left or the right or whether you're progressive or whether you're conservative or any other label in between, you should shudder at living in a country where there are effectively puppet masters who get together in Davos once a year to decide what the right answers to those questions are, whether or not you agree with those questions, that is not the society or the world or the country that you want to live in. And I don't care whether you're Bernie Sanders or whether you're Chris Sprouls, you ultimately want to have the freedom to be able to debate each other through the open rather than be wielded as pawns by a system that uses market power to substitute for that debate. So that's actually what I care even more about than the underlying issue in this particular case for the particular issue at, at stake in the statute. No, no doubt. And I, I think that, you know, we've talked a lot about sort of what the companies are doing externally, whether it's as you know crazy as, as the position that Disney's taken here in the state of Florida. But we also see, and I, I get this a lot, I'm sure you've seen it, right? Where our friends will, you know, be at a social gathering and they'll say, oh my gosh, look at this training, you know, on my phone that I had to go through as an employee, where it essentially tells me that I'm a terrible person uh, because of the color of my skin or because of my gender, or, you know, I'm responsible for all these things. Maybe I, I shouldn't be allowed to speak in meetings um, yeah. as a result of those things, or, or my, my voice should, should count less than someone else's voice for, for a variety of reasons. This is something that has been popping up a lot. And I know you and I've talked about this. We, we, we passed a bill at the legislature this year, House Bill 7, uh, we called individual freedoms. And, and basically what it says is, look, you can't have those kinds of trainings, whether it's in a school district or in a corporate, you know, corporate setting that essentially says, you know, we're going to treat you as less because of your race or your gender or make you responsible for the sins of other people who have the same race or same gender as a way to try to get at some of the corporate behavior that's in school district behavior and so forth that's happening internally, where we're essentially telling employees, this is how you have to behave. Doesn't matter if you believe in it. We've hired a $300,000 consultant to tell us this is the way that you need to believe. So here it is. You know, what did you think about that? Was that the right way to approach some of these issues? Yes. Yeah, so, so look, um, I think it's well motivated. I don't I wouldn't say that it's wrong. If we just have one difference in perspective, it is only that I don't even think that bill was necessary because it's already illegal, in my view, under current law. So this is part of the case I make in the book and I've made in some articles outside of the book as well, which is that actually the, the civil rights statutes of 1964 prohibit, amongst other things, discrimination on the basis of religion. And there's two sides to that coin. One is that means an employee can't, an employer can't in many circumstances discriminate against an employee for their religion. But it also means that an employer cannot force the employee to bow down to the employer's religion either. Now, I think that there is no doubt that this modern trend of wokeness, whatever you want to call it, capital D diversity, the church of diversity, the temple of BEI, meets the Supreme Court's standard and test for what counts as a religion. There are certain words you can't say, clothes you can't wear, apologies you must recant, excommunication procedures that must be initiated. It is not a belief about one matter, but a comprehensive system of beliefs that constitute collectively a worldview. Secular humanism under the Supreme Court's test in case law met the test for a religion. A, a, a funny religion, one that I don't subscribe to, and I think you don't either, called creativity, which professes white supremacy as its core belief, counted under Supreme Court canon as a religion. If wokeness is anything, it is anti-white supremacy on its own terms. 
Wokeness meets the Supreme Court's legal definition for what counts as a religion, which means that the employers today across the country are effectively at behest of firing employees or not paying them their bonuses, forcing them to bend the knee and sign on the dotted line next to this new DEI orthodoxy, which is actually a religion that violates the civil rights statutes on its own terms. So anyway, back to the original question of, you know, does action need to be taken? Absolutely. I, I just think that action could be taken in the courtroom under the existing civil rights statutes. But, you know, I, I have a hard time arguing against the idea of providing more avenues to, uh, to, to seek legal redress for people whose liberties have been violated. The only thing I would say is I generally philosophically tend to be of the school of being as parsimonious when it comes to lawmaking as possible because all laws have unintended consequences. And so if the existing legal toolkit allows us to solve an existing legal problem, uh, you know, that, that'd be probably my number one approach. But that doesn't mean I disagree with you. It just means that that'd be a different emphasis. No, I, love, I actually love that. I, and I think that we, we sort of address that same challenge, right? Because we thought, well, gosh, uh, in fact, the, the law is based in part on an existing cause of action for uh, discrimination in the workplace, hostile work environment as a res- result of, you know, uh, people oppressing you as a result of your gender, or your race, et cetera. And I don't know how much you want to nerd out here, Chris, but yeah. uh, illegally, but, but actually just speaking of Florida, but to take that same point you just made, made in terms of effectively expounding on an existing yeah, legal exactly. One of the years where Florida did this really well, which I think it creates some really interesting, really interesting legal consequences that are yet to play out, but I think could could come to a head all the way to the Supreme Court in the next couple of years is actually the political anti-discrimination statute uh, against social media companies that prevented social media companies of a certain size from being able to engage in political discrimination. Side side note to echo to our earlier conversation, <laughs> uh, this is one that Disney managed to exempt itself from with the Disney statute, which actually interfered in the political process to gain the Disney exemption for theme parks. So Disney's streaming services and websites somehow got exempted from that. I'm not a fan of that. And I say that not knowing who, you know, who voted or not in favor of it, uh, but that, that was crony capitalism in, 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 in sort of plain clothing. But, but anyway, back to the point I was going to make, which is the political and discrimination statute, it was partially overturned by a federal judge. I think that's going to find its way up to the Supreme Court. But actually, what, what one of the judge's grounds for overturning that statute, which said that social media companies can't engage in political discrimination, basically, was that Section 230 preempted the statute. So Section 230 is the federal statute that gives a special cloak of immunity to these, to these social media companies. See, what I think is really interesting is when you pass a state law that expounds upon an already existing constitutional or federal protection, as I believe your statute, Florida anti-discrimination statute did, then construing a federal statute like Section 230 to preempt a statute that actually expounded upon a constitutionally rooted protection may render Section 230 itself unconstitutional. I don't think somebody has litigated that. I think that Clarence Thomas dropped a hint in a side, in a, in a concurring opinion that he dropped in the in the night KNIGHT case about a year and a half ago. I think that the, the breadcrumbs are clear to use what you guys did. And I think an ill-informed federal district court judge's uh, stay on that law on grounds partially that it was preempted by Section 230 to be able for somebody to pick up those strands. Frank, Frank, I think President Trump could be reasonably well positioned during the case he's bringing against the, against the social media companies to take this case with an alternative legal theory that I haven't seen President Trump bring. And man, I've written the Wall Street Journal about it. And, you know, it's not my case, but I hope that people, people who are closer to cases like it do the, do the smart thing, litigate this all the way to the Supreme Court to argue that it is a basis for finding Section 230 itself 
Section 230 preemption unconstitutional for preempting laws like yours that expound upon pre-existing constitutional rights as applied to citizens of states. So a little bit technical there, but but um, I but you know I just think this stuff's really important, and what you guys are doing in Florida is leading the way in so many ways that open up opportunities at a national level that the whole country may stand to benefit from it if people handle these things in the right way. Well, I agree with you. And I think using the court system to overturn some of that and to really kind of take back the public square is sort of the goal of, of all those things. If we if we sort of zoom out back from, you know, case law, Supreme Court, you know, causes yeah, sure. of action, all those things. And, you know, you've got everyday people who, you know, don't have your platform, maybe aren't a lawmaker. They're seeing all this happen. And, you know, and they're they're upset, you know, a family who's got, you know, Disney Plus, who likes to watch, you know, stuff with their kids is sitting there just totally outraged. You know, what do you recommend to those people? I mean, obviously, you see some people say, oh, well, you know, we're going to boycott this. I, I love what the Daily Wire did the other day to say, hey, we're going to spend one hundred million dollars over the next five years on on kids specific programming. You know, that does that's not crazy. Uh, you know, what do you recommend to sort of everyday folks as sort of how to how to do their part to combat this? So, so look, I, I think that there were one step away from everyday folks having an avenue out and that missing step isn't actually even lawmaking. And I respect what lawmakers like you were doing and others at the federal level. But the problem with lawmaking is one dimension that you have. You have a hammer and you can only hit a nail, but the problem presents itself in forms that go beyond you know, nails. Um, the, the missing link is that we need a new generation of capitalists, of entrepreneurs who step up to say that there are over 100 million, I think close to 150 million Americans in this country who are badly put off by the merger of politics and big business, by the infusion of big business with this progressive, neo-progressive orthodoxy. And those happen to be, Chris, just I'm just giving you facts here, happen to be some of the best customers of any business. Good insurance risks, people don't lie in their credit card applications, net savers with a lot of buying power, sticky customers, hard workers. Those are exactly the customers that no major American business is actually going after today with basic messages, not political messages, basic messages like we believe in the American dream, that you should be free to speak your mind, that capitalism is the best system known to mankind to lift people up from poverty, not a racist system. Basic, we're a nation of underdogs, not victims. Basic, apolitical stuff. Approach those customers with that right message. That will be the new class of multi-trillion dollar companies that are built over the next decade and multi-trillion dollar sectors that are turned over by new incumbents. And once we see brave enough capitalist entrepreneurs and CEOs step up to capture that opportunity, um, you know, I think that everyday consumers realize they don't have to wait till every November to cast a vote. They're voting every day with where they put their investment dollars, with where they shop, where they bank. And not because I want to have two parallel economies, a red economy and a blue economy at the end of this. I don't actually. Actually, what we're going to see is that if you steal a million customers at a time from Nike or BlackRock or Airbnb or whoever, what you're going to see is those companies immediately in the next few years start saying that, you know what, our approach to diversity and inclusion may not have been as diverse and inclusive as we thought it was. And we're going to rethink that approach. And that's what brings our more unified culture back. So that's what I'm rooting for, not two parallel economies, but you know, in the social universe, unlike in physics, Sometimes the shortest distance between two points is not a line. We're not starting from neutral territory. And I think this is going to be have to, have to be the route that we take through the market to get us there. And frankly, that's that's why I've prioritized that as my number one focus as well. Uh, well, I can tell you this. It's compelling. I mean, if, if you've got, you know, entrepreneurs in the in the marketplace who, who feel the way you feel, feel the way I feel about sort of the state of corporate America. Man, is that a good sales pitch um, that, hey, listen, not only is this a good idea to sort of save the country, 
but you know you're going to do really well financially because these customers are great there's a huge market and i and there's going to be sort of a backlash from americans who are going to want to lean in to to what you're doing do you do you worry about scale you know you have something of course like disney doing you know kids programming and things like that do you think that there can be sort of a I'm going to use it like a black rock, right? Of these kinds of entrepreneurs who are going to say, we're, we can pool our resources so that we can we can scale out our ability to play in the marketplace. So, so I think scale is going to be tough, uh, but but you know, no opportunity existed without starting with the chicken and egg problem in the first place. Um, I think certain opportunities are easier than others. I think social media is going to be a difficult one to tackle. There are difficult network effects that are deeply embedded. I think that the right place to start is actually in the asset management space where Actually, the, the the BlackRock of this of this movement would not be, in my opinion, what I think many you know conservatives and other frustrated you know actors may turn to, which is to say that we're going to invest in these businesses and not those. I think that's not the right way to go. Actually, I think the right way to go is to invest in the same businesses, the same index funds, the same mutual funds, and say, you know what, these companies do generate cash flows. Let's invest. Let's be a different voice at the table. Okay, let's bring a different voice than the ideological cartel of BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard are bringing today. Right now, you're getting a monolithic, one-dimensional, single-opinion, authoritative viewpoint representing stakeholder capitalism and ESG and CSR. And something we didn't talk about today, another three-letter acronym lurking behind the scene from CSR to CCP. But put that to one side, we, we actually can offer a different vision. I like to call it excellence capitalism. The idea that companies should focus exclusively on delivering excellence in their products and services to their customers has a different vision to stakeholder capitalism, which says that they should be focused on a million other things. That's a vision that many Americans are dying to have represented in the companies where they're involved, either as customers or workers. But what the new BlackRock would look like is actually a business that brought that voice to the table as a shareholder, not by saying that I'm not going to invest in Disney, but because Disney is one of the largest companies in America, it will be included in, in an index fund or mutual fund, but we're bringing a different voice to the table. Kind of like, you know, there's an analogy to what Elon Musk is doing at Twitter, right? It's not just saying I'm going to get off Twitter and get on a new one. And I'm going to actually change Twitter back to its original institutional purpose. Imagine doing that to every company in corporate America. Uh, and I think that lays the groundwork for how we might have a trickle down effect for our culture. And, and we've gotten, um, you know, to the, to the doorstep, to the front door of, of actually, uh, you know, one of the places where I expect to be dedicating my own attention as well. Well, Vic, I, I think we'll probably wrap on that. I, I think that it's you, you just tied together, I think, the two biggest things here, which is the work that you're doing. And I think you're you know one of the leading voices in America on the topic of you know pushing back about what's happening in kind of woke you know corporate America, how it can change in the most constructive, least government intrusive way possible that the market the marketplace has lasting change. So, you know, thanks for what you're doing. Thanks for you know the steps that you're taking to help kind of us, whether you're lawmakers or people at home who are really trying to do your best to to change American culture and to, to maintain the the true greatness uh, of what made America awesome. So thanks for that. Thanks for being with us. Thanks so much.